I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers. Thanks for listening. First, a confession. I am a dog foster fail. When our shepherd died last winter, we intended, once we'd grieved her loss, to adopt a new shepherd puppy. But in the midst of our mourning, I got an email from our animal shelter that they were at critical capacity. So I thought I'd foster a dog and then write up an irresistible review, and she would be out the door to a loving home. Well, Cookie is ours now, and that adorable puppy went somewhere else, and I'm about to learn what I missed. Alexandra Horowitz is a scientist who runs the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard College. She also welcomed a new puppy into her home during the pandemic and wrote a terrific book about the experience. It's titled The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves, and she joins us from New York City. And Dr. Horowitz, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be here, Carrie. Thanks. Was it always a fallacy to think that I could bring a dog into our home and then give her up? I mean, I've got to tell you that bond was so instantaneous, but I do feel like I completely subverted all of our plans to get a puppy, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Yeah, I think that the bond is not always instantaneous. I mean, some people really are interested in just being that temporary bridge for uh, a dog while they're on their way to their home or want to see for themselves if their family is ready for a dog, for instance, Um, you already knew that you were, you had a dog filled gap in your family and maybe that was inevitable that this one would fill it. Yeah, we had a, I mean, we've always had dogs, but I think like you, Uh, We have always adopted, you know, adult dogs, two years old or older. It it sounds like that's been your experience as well until until Quiddity came into your life. Yeah, we did have some younger dogs who I would say are puppies, or I would have called puppies previously, but they were several months into their lives, half a year into their life, not um, eight weeks uh, when many people get a puppy, especially if one buys a puppy from a breeder, it's probably at around eight weeks old which is a much earlier time. And certainly I'd never known a dog in their first days. What was the catalyst? I think you should describe what the catalyst was <laughs> for because for bringing a puppy into your lives because you didn't have a dog-shaped void in your life. You had <laughs> dogs already. We had two large, uh, wonderful dogs, <laughs> and we really did not need another dog or any more dog energy at the same time, um, I, I think like many people who, who adopts dogs when they're a little bit older, always wondered about their early days. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, what better time really to bring a dog into our life who these dogs can kind of help introduce to mm-hmm. the world and to sort of the ways of our family, which I think actually is a very tricky part of adding a new dog to your life. Uh, I had an adolescent or almost adolescent age son, and I um, thought that it would be a, an interesting time for him to see these different life stages. Um, you know, and there was a little bit of scientist in it too. I wanted to, I wanted to observe this puppy like Piaget was observing his children, right? And and being able to bring a little bit of a scientist perspective to those early days. You know, I thought that was interesting that you really felt that the dogs you already had would do some of the 
the work would take on some of the responsibility for helping to turn this puppy into a full-fledged member of the family. So was that always the case, or is there just something unique about the dynamic, you know, among your dogs, or or what? I think inevitably, being introduced to a new context where literally everything is new, the house, uh, the people, any animals there, sort of the, the comings and goings, the space, the how time is used, where all those things are new. If there's a dog, a conspecific, who the new dog can attached to and follow as they naturally will, it's going to be of assistance in starting to make sense of this otherwise um, very undifferentiated, difficult to see new space. So even though I didn't think the dogs would be explicitly teaching, they weren't sort of professionally <laughs> puppy, puppy trainers. They, <laughs> they would inevitably by being themselves and interacting with us in certain ways um, be guiding a new sprite in the house. You've intrigued me. Are there dogs that are professional puppy trainers? I mean, <laughs> this is kind of what they do. <laughs> I no, I don't know. I don't know if there are. Um, you know, moms are in a way professional puppy trainers for the first couple of weeks. They do exactly the right thing, but then they step out of the picture wisely. Yeah. It, you have this lovely description of what it's like to see puppies that are only a few days old. I'm not sure I ever have. You write, I feel let in on a secret as a witness to this time in the lives of puppies. You know, it sounds like even with all of your experience as a dog researcher, there was something really, well, somewhat new and fresh to you about seeing these dogs at this point in their lives. Is that right? Absolutely. Huh. I really had never studied young dogs. Um, huh. There's not huh. a lot of research. This is starting to change um, with one research group right now, but there's not a lot of research into very young dogs' lives in a kind of natural setting. Um, you know, I study dogs in our cognition lab who are owned dogs who have to be at least six months old because we need them to be cooperative in certain little tasks with their people when they come to the lab, simple tasks, but we can't just have completely new creature um, who isn't making sense of the world yet in the lab. It just wouldn't make sense to be asking them the questions that we do, like giving an SAT to a baby, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd never studied them and I had not ever witnessed this time in their life. And um, so I was really set up for that kind of excitement of discovery that I did feel every time I met them. So your childhood, um, I assume that it was filled with dogs, but not not really young dogs, mostly adult dogs or what? We did adopt dogs from rescues. So they were however old they were when we got them. Uh, we were kind of seri a serial dog owning family, one to another to another. Mm -hmm. And I would never have been a very big part of uh, kind of introducing them to the house that was really left to my parents. And I, you know, I just enjoyed them as companions. And I was, I certainly loved dogs, but I didn't think that I would be turning a scientific gaze towards dogs at all. I had no sense of that when I was growing up. Well, how did it happen? Oh, completely accidentally. And dogs were kind of inadvertent. Uh, I was a graduate student studying non-human animal minds. 
and looking for sort of subject populations to ask questions about metacognition. Do non-human animals think about themselves the way we think about ourselves? It's tricky to ask those types of questions because uh, we mostly get answers from people in language, you know, uh, do you know that someone else other than you? Yes, I do, you know, versus a dog where you ask them and they say nothing in reply. So we, you, I thought we have to look at naturally occurring behavior where there's the possibility that we see kind of these metacognitive skills popping up. And I looked at play behavior. Um, I think that's a really great way that we learn about ourselves and others and roles and things that people do and do not know. Uh, and it turned out then, if I wanted to find a playing animal all the time, there was one right in front of me, in fact, <laughs> in my house. And that was a dog named Pumpernickel. And I was taking her out several times a day to play with other dogs. So I began turning my video camera on them and mm. then wound up just studying dogs. Um, and it was a time when 20 years ago, dogs were not being studied as interesting cognitive specimen, uh, maybe because they were ubiquitous or we thought we already knew everything about them. But I was able to ride this early wave of people who realized that, oh, it's not just the metacognitive questions that are interesting, but these subjects themselves, dogs, mm. we haven't really investigated. So I've stuck with it since then. And it's been a, a lovely surprise. You know, I've found when I talk to scientists who study a particular animal, that they're often not romantics about the mm. animal, that, <laughs> that they take a very practical um, I, I guess somewhat reserved approach. It struck me. I know a, a scientist who studies lions, and another that studies uh, marine, large marine creatures. They're not. They're just. They bring. They don't fall in love with the idea of studying these creatures. And I, I wonder how you describe yourself in that. That's interesting observation. I do think that naturally the scientist approach is ostensibly a kind of objectified one, even though we know more and more as scientists how much we are part of the equation in our viewing and observations and data gathering. And it sounds like some people are pretty successful at not feeling a bond with their subjects um, for the most part. You know, with dogs, I think when dogs come into the lab or I'm studying, I'm watching dogs in natural contexts interact. Uh, I don't, I'm not thinking about how much I love dogs. Mm. I'm thinking about them as interactors and I'm looking at their behavior. Of course, it's all predicated on the fact that I do very much love this species. Uh, so that's kind of part of a motivator, but I don't, I think when I'm taking a kind of scientific approach, I do remove myself from it just so that I can see a little bit better um, right. what's happening. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. And I'm in conversation with Alexandra Horowitz. She's a scientist who runs the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard College. She has had dogs throughout her life. 
uh, mostly adult dogs. And she's written a new book about the experience of adopting a puppy. It's called The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. She's joining us from New York City. You hear some construction noise in the background. Well, that's New York City. So just want to let you know that's what you're hearing. Um, So I I guess it's this idea that uh, if you're if you're studying an animal, rarely, or or a marine creature or something, rarely can you have that animal as a scientist in your home, right? So you do have this kind of dual experience of bringing your scientific self to the study, but then also living and loving the subjects that you study too. That's a little right. unusual, I guess, isn't it? It is. And I think it's the way that, it's the reason that dogs weren't studied for a long time is that Um, They didn't feel like uh, an almost exotic sort of other um, who we didn't know anything about. They felt like an animal we must know everything about because, look, we're letting them sleep in our beds, right? And (laughs) And they're sitting right at the dinner table with us. So we must already have answers to those cognitive questions, right? So I think that is... It, unusual. It's becoming less unusual insofar as more domestic animals are being studied now uh, with whom people might have uh, relationships apart from taking scientific approaches. Um, I do think actually it's a really privileged position that I have because I get to have a relationship with this dog and know her and observe her. And then when I notice something, you know, I can form hypotheses mm-hmm. about it. We can start to test those in the lab. There's a lot of feedback that happens from the lab too. If I learn something about dog behavior from the lab, I can then take that home and maybe it will change the way I interact with my dog. So I love I love the tension and opportunities that being on both sides of that avail. I know. I think it's a dream job for dog lovers. Now, mm-hmm. um, super interesting to read about how important it is to development that puppies be held gently in the first days of life. And then at, at three weeks old, they're moving into the most important developmental stages of their lives. W- will you talk about the the gentle handling and what researchers have discovered about that? Right. There has actually been a little bit of research about whether certain types of basically challenges to the puppy system will help dogs later become, this research was about developing great working dogs. Um, So basically dogs that are up for everything, that are not anxious uh, or fearful or aggressive. And what they did was really just challenge them physically in ways that they um, wouldn't be challenged on their own. And by challenges, I mean, you know, lifting up a puppy, for instance, and maybe holding them and slightly upside down as though they're, you know, uh, going down a ski a ski slope, supporting their head as you do. That's not a position that a puppy would be in naturally. They can barely move at all when they're just a few days or a few weeks old and their mom isn't putting them in that position. So it just gives their body something to adjust to, Hmm. you know, putting them upside down in a safe way. Uh, These type of handling, it turns out, if done a little bit every day, leads to dogs who are less anxious um, more curious, more exploratory, calmer. Wow. So I'm not sure that we can, I'm not sure how profound that result is. You know, we don't have a puppy who wasn't handled and a puppy who was, but it does look like 
these early, what we would broadly call socializations, do have a pretty big effect in the personality that develops. And so then at three weeks and beyond, uh, puppies are moving into the most important developmental stages of their lives. So so what is the length of this period and, and what's happening in puppy development? The period, the socialization period lasts for several weeks, um, up to about 14 weeks of age, really, uh, although it goes through little stages. And we call it socialization. So people think, oh, you need to be social, right? Have other dogs around, have maybe any local cats come by. Uh, The puppies should be exposed to lots of people in that way where they won't be afraid of people. They'll be interested in people. That's true. It is exposure to sort of all types of animals, including the human animal um, and including, you know, little toddler animals too, who, who act very differently than adult animals. But also it's exposing them to all types of sounds and smells and textures, walking on surfaces that make noise or that are uneven or disturbing. It's allowing them to meet all these things in this period of their life where they're very open and receptive before they enter a period of their life where they're much more guarded mm-hmm. and less, uh, less willing to be approached. And if you do expose them to all these different sounds and smells and sensations, they wind up being better adapted to them later on. If you know what to look for, can you, even at three or four weeks, see a puppy's personality starting to emerge? Hmm. It's really a great question. And it's not clear that it is completely emergent at that time. That said, you do start to see distinctions between members of a litter And even between how moms might treat members of the litter, which do lead to slightly different behaviors, right? So dogs who are a little more likely to remain close to mom, dogs who are a little more exploratory, dogs who are starting to be interested in other dogs early versus dogs who are less interested in socializing with other dogs. Very small tendencies, but they're still in bloom, right? So the full personality hasn't developed yet. You know what I was curious about is when you write about, we're going to talk about Quiddity's um, specific, the litter that she came from and her siblings. But overall, it's, you know, just as human research tells us how important siblings are to childhood development, it, it sounds like puppy siblings end up being pretty important in those early developmental stages. Is that right? It's absolutely true. I mean, a a puppy in a litter of one would still survive. But in the first couple of weeks of life, puppies are really taking all their cues from mom. And mom is actually essential to their survival. They 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 can't see anything. They can't hear anything. They can barely lift their own head up. What they can do is suck, basically. So mom's responsible for keeping them at her belly and also for keeping them warm keeping because they can't regulate their own body temperature. But a couple weeks into life, their eyes are open, their ears are almost all the way open and they start being cognizant of each other. And they absolutely learn immediately from this, the other members of the pile of puppies that they're in. They follow the a puppy wherever they're going If one dog urinates in a spot, the others will urinate in that spot. 
So they are predisposed to see each other kind of as teachers. Hmm. And in that way, as a group, really quickly expand their small world from just around mom to, you know, as far as the bodies and that most adventurous puppy will take them. What, what happens if you take a puppy away from its mother and siblings too soon? If you took a puppy away at that very, very early age, they would first of all have a, a difficult time surviving, right? Mm. They're completely dependent on mom for food and you'd have to bottle feed them if, you know, if they were without a person who was there to step in into that role, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to nourish themselves. They also can't, as I said, thermoregulate. So they have to be kept close to very warm others and or a heating pad all the time. And it, if they just got through that physically, this kind of emotional and cognitive development that comes from learning from others would also be absent. So ideally, you know, you'd have to have other dogs uh, around them who could just by their presence be giving some guidance into kind of how to be a dog. If they didn't have that latter part, they would probably develop without a lot of understanding about how to interact with other dogs. Um, Difficulty. Yeah. And and if you've ever met a dog who was uh, a stray dog who seemed to live not in a group of other dogs, but by themselves, and then is adopted into a home, they're very aloof. They have difficulty with that kind of what we consider normal dog interaction. It's really contingent on those early exposures that happen naturally in the litter. So so a dog that is aloof from its human family, that is the that that is not a typical response. I mean dogs want to bond with humans and if they've not been taken away from their siblings and their mothers too soon and they've had good interactions with humans, normally you will find that dog ready to bond with humans? Typically, yes. I mean, there there will be small personality differences, Mm -hmm. some dogs who are just naturally more aloof. But right, if they haven't been exposed to people in that early socialization period, people in a positive way, in other words, then they're going to have a lot more trouble later bonding with them Although it's not impossible, it's going to be a, a protracted exercise like learning Farsi as an adult, right? But <laughs> they could probably impossible. do it. Yeah. <laughs> right. But so, yes, that aloofness might be personality, but it more probably comes from a lack of uh, exposure. Dogs have been domesticated to be our companions, right? Mm. They are very much turned in our direction. But then again, if they only see, people as potential predators or threats and not as potential family, that's what they learn. So had you, when you learned about the litter of puppies from which Quiddity eventually came to your house, uh, had you already decided you were going to adopt one of those puppies or did you start to observe the litter because you were thinking about writing a book about puppies and then it was like, I cannot walk away from these puppies. I must have one. (laughs) How did it work? Well, I will admit it was a research project first where I wanted to observe multiple litters um, and see various births. And then eventually I thought we would find the puppy who was clearly meant to live with our family. Um, But a pandemic swept in Mm. 
right in the middle of this litter's development. And I was visiting the litter every several days or every week in their early weeks. And they were about five weeks old, I guess, when uh, suddenly, you know, the world acknowledged that we need to shut down and cloister ourselves. And I realized, oh, I'm not going to be able to walk into somebody else's house and observe their litter of puppies. I think it's the this litter that we're going to have to adopt the mm. dog from. So I did love all the pups in that litter, right? But I wasn't, I didn't have my eye on them. Like, I'm going to take one of you home. Um, instead, I was just observing them as uh, little growing sweet potatoes, you know, and not thinking that one of them was ours. <laughs> but Quiddity had other other ideas, right? And that wasn't her name. At the, I, I love this no. idea that the the person who was raising this litter of puppies gave them all these names of was it flora, fauna, plants? What where did yeah. they come from? They were all plants, uh, typical of a indigenous diet. The the foster lived in upstate New York, and she. You know, she, I mean, she had 11 puppies to name and the mother, and she came up with uh, this range of great um, native uh, flora that were part of a Native American diet. <laughs> and yours w ended up being wild ramps, exactly. <laughs> which became quiddity. <laughs> yes. It made me laugh. I mean, the wild part might have might be apt. But <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Alexandra Horowitz. She's a scientist. She runs the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard College. And she wrote this great book called The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. She's coming to us from New York City. And yet you're hearing like construction or something in the background. So I just want to let you know, we know about that. And we're talking anyway. Um, and we're having a good time. Okay, so tell me how Quiddity chose you or you chose her. Which Which do you think came first? I think that we were not completely on her radar. I mean, she was equal opportunity effusive to everybody. <laughs> uh, and a number of the puppies actually were highly extroverted, more extroverted than others. Uh, she wasn't the type of puppy who, when I sat down on the floor in the little puppy pen that the foster mom set up for visitors, um, would come and sit on my lap right away. Mm. She was more one that would come and start chewing my coat sleeve. Um, <laughs> and many would come and start chewing my coat sleeve. So there were, <laughs> that kind of personality was forming. But uh, we, I, I did think we had these two older dogs and they're both male. And I did think we wanted a little bit of a kind of female dog energy in the house. I'd lived with both male and female dogs in the past. And I had this, just very rough idea about that. And the foster actually said, well, she wanted to set us up with her in particular versus really? oh. our choosing, right? She thought that she had met our family, she'd met the other potential adopters. And it was her prerogative to say, I think that this one will match your family best. What do you think? And, and we agreed to adopt her. And it was completely exciting. She was... Um, she was she's sort of a rare looking specimen. She uh, is. I mean, she's the picture on the cover of the book, right? That's right. Yeah, she is. Yeah. She's just like a supermodel. I don't know how. I, yeah. So it, it seemed it was kind of exciting in that way that she's such an unusual looking dog. And yet I never would have. I never 
it wasn't inevitably her, it, from my perspective at all. I really wanted to have the kind of acuity to see, oh, look at all these different pap- puppy behaviors. This is our puppy. Mm. But I didn't see that, you know, and I thought that was fascinating. Maybe because one cannot, maybe my scrutiny was kind of too close. Um, but m- I think more because it's just hard to imagine into what that dog is going to be like in your family. Um, that dynamic is sort of completely yet to be determined and you can't see it ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. Much to your delight and chagrin at times, yes. right? Um, yes. I, I think you should describe some of these wonderful descriptions of what she looked like as she kind of became herself. For for listeners, describe, I guess, what she looked like as a puppy and now and now what she looks like. Well, there were so many different looks through puppyhood. You know, they start out um, really as just little splodges of fur. And then uh, they were all these Australian cattle dog mixes. Um, so many of the puppies were um, merle coated, which is a kind of gray and black and brown and white splotchiness. If you know cattle dogs, you might recognize that. Um, their ears were all dropped, meaning sort of floppy ears, but occasionally an ear would kind of swoop up in the air. And cattle dogs typically do have erect ears, um, more wolf-like than uh, Labrador-like. So they started to have those. She is mostly black with with like these flamboyant red eyebrows (laughs) and a huge amount of what we call furnishings, uh, which are sort of extra long hair around her uh, muzzle like she has a beard. In fact, she's often mistaken for <laughs> on the street, I find to my great amusement for a male dog. And I think it's oh, because she has funny. a beard. Huh? Yeah. Um, and so she's a, a medium, small dog with a beard and great big eyebrows. Like it does sort of sound like a, a funny older male actually. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> and ears that have a huge amount of personality um, are very large, over large for her head. And you know, spent a long time before they finally went up in full salute. She also seems to have an expression that's just full of curiosity and sassiness and mm. and what You're I think right. of as dog wisdom. I mean, I think that emanates from her <laughs> eyes. Am I reading too much into it? <laughs> I Well, I think that sassiness is, is right on. She has a kind of keenness, right? Mm. She is game. She's ready for the next thing. She's observing. That's not atypical of uh, working dogs. And she would have been bred, at least some of her ancestors were working dogs. They're always kind of on it, um, really in that moment. And she absolutely embodies that. (laughs) I'm going to ask you to read uh, from the chapter, and it's titled Imperfect Puppy. Uh, How long has Quiddity been with you at this point? This is... um, really just a week, a couple of weeks into her okay. coming into our house um, when I wasn't sure that she was the perfect puppy after all. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> all right. Imperfect puppy. It's 3.15 in the morning. Quiddity is howling. Actually, she started with crying, which morphed into a kind of yowl. And now a half hour on, She is doing her best coyote impression in our living room to an audience of one. It is her third performance this night. 
Somehow I am the only one awakened and I am completely awake, staring at the ceiling in the dark, waiting for her to settle. I stay perfectly still, willing her voice still. If she quiets for even a minute, I will go down and lie by her crate, hoping some company will calm her. That is what one of us has done every night for the last several nights. I am sleep deprived and grumpy. She does not stop. And eventually I go down anyway, grumbling as I go. I might have said I hate her under my breath. At night, all my concerns are amplified as though they feed off darkness. The little worries that have bubbled up in her first week with us are now giant billboards. We have made a mistake. She is the wrong dog, the wrong breed of dog. She is too demanding. I don't like the commotion, the constant supervision. I don't like having to be on top of everything, anticipating the next need to pee or object that will be chewed. I am worried about the stress she is placing on the dogs. Finn is constantly sending me accusatory glances. I feel sure he has got new gray hairs on his muzzle. Upton has stopped playing with us altogether and often just up and leaves a room when we enter, puppy at our heels. She is over needy and underfoot. I lack the energy required to maintain the encouraging, enthusiastic tone of voice needed to get her attention, to egg her on to climb that step, to follow me, to stay off, down, there. I am needed and I do not want to be needed. I churn with irritation and impatience. <laughs> oh, Alexander, that was a tough time. I'll bet. <laughs> Alexander Horowitz, uh, reading from her book, The Year of the Puppy, How Dogs Become Themselves. I've got to tell you how comforting it was to hear that a scientist who studies dogs still has those um, moments of what were we thinking? What Because when you're in that, even with an adult dog, you know, when you first brought them into your family and they're, you just think, is this ever going to work? You know, yeah. three days in, is it ever going to work? Of course it is. But, you know, you're just, you feel so out of control, I guess. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I'm always cautioning people when they come to me a week after they get a puppy or a dog and it's not working out that they just have to be patient right, that this is a phase, and this is actually kind of an expected phase of the dog learning about what life is like here, while your normal life is suddenly being put into relief, because it's been overturned by the arrival of the new dog. Um, and yet I, I, too, was impatient. And I, too, was uh, upset at being underslept and out of control, right? So yeah, I hadn't anticipated either having that reaction or um, writing about that reaction. <laughs> but I'm glad if my confession and sort of my acknowledgement of the fact that this is can be a difficult saga is useful to other people, because I do think this is when a lot of people start to turn their backs on the dog. It's too tough to train the dog. They, it's just not the right dog. And then they wind up returning the oh, dog. Oh, that's devastating. And then it's just even harder for that dog to find a home again, right? But this is, you know, if you look at it from the dog's point of view, it's tricky figuring out how to live in a human household. It's We might have domesticated them to be looking toward us, to be able to bond with us, but not instantly and not to understand human society and the kind of Byzantine rules uh, that we put on 
on their comings and goings and behavior. So we do really, and I included, really do need to give those dogs a break and know that it's going to be a little while of struggle. You know, I really appreciated, too, how you took on this industry of well-known canine coaches who are all about the perfect puppy in 50 days, you know, that kind of thing. You, yeah. you say one of the pleasures of dogs is that they are full of messy behaviors. This is why we do not adopt robots. Where do you <laughs> think, Alexander, this idea uh, got started that you can turn your dog into like this little exacting robot that will require no, you know, coaching or training, or you can train them into that, you know, in three weeks. In a way, I think it started from a good place, which is to say um, something that would help facilitate with ease the introduction of one quadrupedal species into the homes of this completely different bipedal species. And trying to figure out, well, what is it that the people need? And so therefore, what should we teach the puppy? And in fact, you know, there is a great and a huge industry of trainers who are brilliant at doing this as a way to creating a relationship. Mm -hmm. But none of them is going to say, you know, they're just five steps you need to do. And if you do these five steps, you know, the relationship is sealed. And, and furthermore, if it doesn't work out, then there's a problem with your dog. None of them is saying that they're all saying, This is on the way to uh, developing a relationship. So I think it came from that place. And then, you know, given the ubiquity of dogs, there are so many products and services that are constantly offered that try to fill the, um, you know, fill the space that's created as people cry out, like, I want, I need my dog to do this. Why does my dog do this? Um, How do I, what do I do with my dog when I have to leave home? And so industries come in and fill that space and they're going to be a variable quality, you know, and it's pretty hard for a new dog person to wander through that and figure out how to actually navigate it. Um, and I do think in some ways the best way to navigate it is to, you know, educate yourself about dogs and the history of dogs and people and what dogs are like, and then just experience that time with the dog being open to whoever they are, um, getting guidance along the way as you need, but having no expectations that they're going to be turned into a, a perfect specimen. Yeah, I think it's confusing, too, um, because, you know, and unless you've had so many dogs that you have a lot of confidence, um, because, you know, I've talked to canine, what I think of as canine coaches, and they differ on things like dog parks. You know, mm-hmm. one one woman that we've worked with does not like dog parks. She thinks people, they don't control their dogs. They let their dogs misbehave. And if your dog, you know, is in the middle of that, maybe they're learning bad behavior. Others are like, yeah, this is where they run it out and they'll work it out. And I don't know, Mm -hmm. do you have a a view on Mm -hmm. that? I think it's like raising children, right? You know, do you sleep train your child or do you let them uh, do you pick them up when they cry? You know, it's going to be work differently for different families. Mm-hmm. And there are some dogs who will have poor experiences in dog parks, right? It's not the ideal setting for them and others for whom it's a great social space. And yes, I do think you often have to work through little tensions between dogs that, um, that we might get worried about and let them happen. 
but you know, it can also be an unsafe place. So there's no one or there's no black or white, right? And anybody who gives kind of black or white equations about what's best for all dogs is going to be making a mistake mm. with a good population of the dogs. Mm-hmm. What do you think the biggest mistake is that that loving pet parents make with with dogs beyond what you've just said about your three weeks in? The dog hasn't completely fit into your household, and now you're like, this will never work. What What else do, do people misunderstand, I guess, about it? Um, I do think that uh, it takes a long time to realize that the dog's experience of the world isn't like their own, right? Mm-hmm. Like our own. That they're living in a kind of parallel olfactory world that isn't quite um, the human visual world full of rules and regulations and social, uh, cultural tendencies, that's quite different. And they never really do see that. Right. Uh, and the collisions I think of cultures happen because of that. Um, but even more fundamentally, I think a mistake that people make is thinking that breed that they're kind of inevitabilities of behavior with breeds. Um, and that if you adopt a dog, who's a certain breed that you're definitely going to get a certain kind of behavior, um, whether it's really friendly behavior, friendly golden retriever, for instance, who loves people or dogs who are kind of uh, tarred with the negative connotations of the breed, uh, aggressive pit bulls or used to be Rottweilers or Doberman or German Shepherds, but currently it's the pit bulls that are the bete noir. And that those breeds have inevitable behaviors and are kind of uh, certain personalities. I think that leads to real problems in interaction with your own dog and interaction with other dogs um, through their life. Uh, And I wish that we could overcome this idea that breed breeds are like buying a new car. Like you can, you can pick the car with the specs you like. Um, I want a friendly, good with children dog and that if you get the right breed that it's all going to be fine um whereas other breeds are aggressive and strong and you should avoid them that's that's just uh too simplistic yeah it's interesting to hear you say that because the dog that we fostered and failed and adopted (laughs) (laughs) is she's a pit bull mix and Mm -hmm. i went into this i think under some misperceptions about what the misperceptions that you've just described, she's incredibly calm and loving, a little wary with new people, but we can we can work with that. I, as somebody who's experienced as experienced as I think I am about dogs, I was falling under, you know, the stereotypes that you've just yeah. described. I, I guess the culture reinforces that. Is that is that part of Absolutely. it? Absolutely. There are still breed bands in lots of parts of this country. That's right. Um, where because of, you know, a couple of horrific incidents, sometimes not even involving the particular breeds that are therefore banned. Mm-hmm. Um, whole breeds are cast as uh, aggressive and not allowed sometimes in the city at all, or sometimes in housing in the city. So essentially the same thing or outside without a muzzle. And then everybody think about this, even if you have one of these dogs, uh, everybody's interaction with them is going to be tinged with yes, for sure. uncertainty and 
people aren't going to let their dogs interact with that dogs, which is going to heighten the difficult social interactions that they're trying to avoid. So it not only is it a part of just our culture right now, unfortunately, um, it feeds into itself, right? right. Uh, and yeah, as people who have adopted pit bull mixes know, they can be just the loveliest dogs. Oh my gosh, she is yeah. the most loving and affectionate dog. Um, it's been great. Okay, two things I don't want to miss. Uh, you write about smell walks. And yes. I've read about this before. I'm very aware of how important it is. But I think a lot of people are like, if I'm giving my dog a walk, they're getting the exercise they need. And that's all, you know, that's all that's required. Yeah. But um, could you say something about how important it is to let the dog linger and smell as you as you go? I love that you bring that up, Carrie, because that actually it harkens back to this, I think, misconception that we were talking about earlier, where we think the dog is just sort of experiencing the world the way we are. And they're really not. You know, we have this idea about what a walk is for, uh, which is sort of unspoken, I guess. But I think if I speak it, it would be it's, you know, so that they can get exercise. Maybe it's so that they can see other dogs, depending on the type of dog person you are. And it's so that they can relieve themselves. But for a dog, what must a walk be? You know, that's a everything, right? They are confined all day to your house, might be a perfectly lovely house and very comfortable house, <laughs> but it doesn't give them a lot of room to control what they want to do, right? They can wander from room to room, but there's not, they can't sort of see the world. So this is their chance to see the world. And yes, let take them outside to relieve themselves. Yes, take them outside to get exercise. But one of the things they do to see the world is they smell it. And that might mean that when you head out the door, the first thing they want to do is stop, put their nose on the ground for <laughs> three minutes and see who has been by before, which is the type of information that they're getting when they sniff closely and long at a surface or the ground. So I very much encourage people to let their dogs sniff um, on smell walks at maybe once a day, if you took your dog out, if you're in a place where you're able to take your dog out three times a day for walks, great. Let one of those be a sniff walk. You might not make it very far. Maybe you make it 45 meters from your house, <laughs> but allowing your dog to, your dog's nose basically to guide you. And I think people find this difficult to do initially, but the more you appreciate um, that they're seeing a whole world, right? They're going into the museum basically. And they're gazing at everything that's out there that's been put there and you're not yanking their nose away. So you see their appreciation of that. Um, it's also mentally tiring, right? They're using uh, their brain, their mental muscle. So both of those things become satisfying over time for us a little later for them. I love your analogy of the museum. Mm. It's just great. Yeah. I say slip an audio book into your ear Mm -hmm. into one ear and, you know, just distract yourself while the dog is smelling the pea mail and everything else that's around there. Absolutely. Um, and, and here's the other thing. It sounds like, again, I appreciated your candor on, it sounds like it took a while for you to love quiddity. It didn't come, mm -hmm. it wasn't immediate for you. Mm -hmm. It was not. Huh. And, you know, for my, the rest of my family, my son and my husband, who's, judgment I greatly admire. They were on it at once. They loved her right away. <laughs> loved everything about her. And I, you know, I, I wonder, I think I just take a little longer to, um, to fall in love. And part of that is 
wanting to know more about who it is, right? Um, I mean, I thought, of course, she's terribly cute. I can objectively see she's cute, right? And that's a very cute behavior and I could kind of label them, but it didn't, I didn't feel it um, until I knew her longer. Um, and the other half of it was that as she was coming into our house with this huge vitality, uh, our older dogs were really slowing down. And in the case of Finnegan, who has been just a great and lovely companion for so long. And in all of my books, he makes an appearance. Um, he was, he had a horrible progressive degenerative disease and was really slowing down. And I saw like life slipping from him as this new life was joining our family. And I felt the unfairness of that a lot. And it was hard to, it was hard to love her. Right. Um, after they passed, actually, I think it became a little easier for me to see her for who she was um, and appreciate, just appreciate her spirit versus seeing it as, um, you know, reflecting, unfortunately, the other side of the dog's, any dog you live with's life. Right. So, so when did you turn the corner and really fall in yeah. love? <laughs> hmm. I mean, a year into it, I'd say I definitely liked her a lot. You know, I, I think I loved her, but it took that long. And I, and of course I'm may, way more fond of her now, two and a half years into her life than I was at a year. Uh, she's, she's just completely part of our family now. Right. Um, but it, it, I'd say, I'd say it's a year. So that's the kind of patience I mm. <laughs> encourage people to have to see that, you know, this is a long-term relationship too, right? This isn't just an object you buy and, and, and plop into your household. It's, it's going to change the dynamic um, between every member of your household and it's going to change the space of your house and it will change you, but over time. It sounds like you were listening to Brad Meldell's jazz stylings while you were writing the book. Am I right? I was. I was. Yeah. Uh, We're going to close with his version of Young at Heart. Wonderful. That's great. Alexander Horowitz, I love the conversation. Thank you so much. I loved it, Carrie. I really appreciate your reading and, and your reflections on the book. Thanks. Alexander Horowitz's new book is called The Year of the Puppy how dogs become themselves. (laughs) 